a seat. I don't know. <laughs> Come on in. We'll be uh, getting started in a second with Al Franken. Welcome, it's great to have you with us. I want to uh, uh, introduce myself on this program. I'm Larry Jacobs, I'm a faculty at the University of Minnesota in the Department of Political Science and the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. I also direct the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance, which is bringing you today's conversation. Uh, part of the tradition of our programming is we welcome your questions, we're eager to get them and we'll get to as many as possible and very conveniently at the bottom of your screen you'll see a Q&A button which allows you to put in your questions and uh, for us to then um, go through them. Uh, very excited to have with us Al Franken. Uh, it's going to be a, a great conversation and again looking forward to your, your questions. Um, Al grew up here in Minnesota in St. Louis Park which is a suburb of Minneapolis. A famous comedian, best-selling author, twice elected to the U.S. Senate from Minnesota, and he is now uh, running the Al Franken podcast, which you can find on Apple, Spotify, and Google. Al Franken, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Larry. Really uh, appreciate the invitation. Looking forward to this. Yeah, well, let me just jump in and say, what are your expectations about the presidential um, and Senate elections that we're now in the throes of? Well, I'm nervous. Uh, this is very, a lot of people say this is the most important election of their lifetimes. I think it's the second most. The last one was the most important and we blew it. But uh, I don't think, <laughs> uh, this is now the most important, obviously. Uh, no, I'm very nervous about a number of aspects of it. Um, we have, a uh, president who seems to have an anti-democratic and small d streak in him and uh, who has already been laying a lot of groundwork for contesting uh, the outcome of this election. And that makes me particularly nervous. And also, we saw, I, I think you've seen uh, Vice President Biden with a uh, a good lead all throughout uh, this uh, fall thus far. And, um, you know, that makes me nervous because, <laughs> only because we saw that last, uh, last election as well. Um, and so, but uh, as far as the Senate, I, we have a lot of opportunities, obviously, to pick up seats and hopefully take the majority. And, of course, uh, I uh, very much hopeful that we will do that and take the presidency as well. But I, uh, there's lots, lots of reasons to uh, encourage people uh, who are uh, to vote <laughs> and to get out there and work as hard as they can, unless you're on the other side, in which case 
uh, it doesn't matter. Um, let's do a little speculation here. If Donald Trump had handled the coronavirus back in January and February, kind of like Germany, uh, Germany has less than 10,000 deaths due to the coronavirus compared to over 200,000 now in America. Do you think Donald Trump would be in a much stronger position to win re-election than perhaps the polls would be reversed at this point? Absolutely. I think I wrote a piece um, saying basically the premise of it was that uh, even uh, a, a, nar a malignant narcissist of even uh, medium intelligence would have understood that handling this well would have led to his reelection. Uh, clearly, um, he didn't. He didn't understand that. Uh, we now know that he understood how serious this was, and he said so to Bob Woodward uh, early, very early on in February, and that he then lied to the American people by saying this was a democratic hoax. And, I mean, uh, his excuse was that he was being a cheerleader for the American people. I, I've, you know, I've been to a lot of high school games in, in Minnesota. I've never seen the cheerleaders turn around and fire AK-47s into the crowd. Uh, this was, uh, and then he compared himself to Churchill, uh, which <laughs> Churchill actually uh, told the British people exactly what they were dealing with and rallied them. And this, what, what Trump did was, he was Neville Chamberlain as far as I'm concerned. One of the themes of the Trump campaign is that the president is better positioned to handle the economic recovery. We do see in polls that he has an advantage in terms of handling the economy over Joe Biden. October 29th, five days before election day, the uh, government will be releasing the latest numbers in terms of the growth of the economy, the GDP number. And most economists are projecting that will be over 25% and a record level of growth compared to the second quarter. Do you think that's gonna be a boost for the president coming down the home stretch? Well, it shouldn't be. I mean, it's 25% over what? And uh, if you look at Germany, if you look at other countries who've handled this, well, they were able to open their economies quicker and they were able to also handle the bottom of this much better. So, and it, what's interesting about it is that Trump keeps saying that he had record uh, job growth. He didn't during his administration. Uh, the job growth in the last uh, several years, uh, the same period, three plus years of the Obama administration had actually been greater. And of course, uh, Barack Obama and Joe Biden inherited a, a an economy that was losing 800,000 jobs a month. I think people remember that was right at the height of the, of the worst part of job loss in terms of the Great Recession. And they led the recovery. And what uh, Trump inherited as president was a record number of straight months of job growth. And, um, He's lost, we've lost every job that he created due to his mishandling of, of COVID. As you know, Joe Biden has put together a series of task forces with, uh, with people like Bernie Sanders' uh, staff and, and uh, supporters, uh, with Elizabeth Warren's uh, team, uh, and with others. And the results of this task force, which were released about a month or so ago, show a pretty decisive progressive tilt or shift by Joe Biden from being a kind of a centrist candidate to being much more of a progressive. We see this on healthcare where now we've got uh, the president, excuse me, Joe Biden um, on board for public option. He's also on board for um, uh, uh, extending um, a variety of benefits, including uh, free community college education, um, free public university education for those earning less than 25000 a year. This is a pretty significant shift, don't you think? 
Not really. Um, if you look at, for example, the first thing you mentioned uh, was, uh, what was the first thing you mentioned? You mentioned this is government oh, yeah, options. Uh, uh, yeah, he was for that. Uh, uh, yeah, th that we would have had that, but for Joe Lieberman, that you, uh, yeah, an option to join Medicare or Medicaid. Uh, now, the, the alternative, of course, is Donald Trump, where you would get rid of Medicaid expansion. You would get rid of protections for people with pre-existing conditions. Um, as far as free community college, there are states that do that. Tennessee does that. That's yeah. not really that radical. In terms of means testing public universities, that's not that radical at all. If you make less than $25,000, what I thought was radical and uh, wrongheaded was free public university for everyone. I mean, uh, the one thing, I don't think we need to give very affluent people <laughs> A free public. I mean, we we have these wealth gaps in this country. You know, if you're if you're in Detroit, Michigan, or you're in the suburbs of Detroit, whoops, uh, and you go to a great school, University of Michigan, you shouldn't get a free education if your parents are making five hundred thousand dollars a year. Same if you're in Minnesota and go to the U of M. But 25,000, yeah. Uh, you know, it used to be when my wife, when my wife and I went to college, Fran and I met our freshman year, a Pell Grant paid for over 83%, I believe it was, of a public college tuition. That essentially was the same as going free. You could just have an, an odd job and, and pay for your college education. That's the way it used to be. That's the way it should be. On these policies and climate change and, and still others, they exist and other people have supported them, including you. But Joe Biden wasn't necessarily on that page. He moved. He moved well, in a public option. A public option he was for all during the campaign. Um, I, the, uh, the Obama administration started moving toward free community college, um, if not so do, you, doing that you, in many places. You don't think Joe Biden has moved? in a progressive direction? I think he probably has. And I think yeah. that's a recognition of where uh, Americans are, where, first of all, Democrats are, but also where Americans are. Uh, if you look at, you know, most Americans were for some version of Medicare for all. I wasn't for the Bernie option of Medicare for all. Uh, Bernie was talking about getting rid of all uh, private insurance. If you look at Canada, Canada is single payer, but 70% of Canadians get some form of supplemental private insurance. There is no country in the world that uh, doesn't have, that, that has universal health care that doesn't have some form of private insurance. Yeah. So I think that uh, what he is for is actually very, very, very much in the mainstream of of uh, what Americans want. When Republicans say that uh, Joe Biden is, is going to be a vessel for uh, progressives, are they wrong? I mean, Joe Biden, as you said, is, he's moved a bit to the progressive wing. It depends what you mean by progressive. For example, if you believe uh, in believing in science, if that's a progressive uh, stance, yeah. I think he'll plead guilty to that. Yeah. Uh, Scientific American made its first endorsement in 170 in its 175 years of existence, and it made it of Biden. So I guess yeah, they're pro he's progressive in that case where he believes in evidence, and we have a president now who doesn't, which is very frightening, and a president who is putting has put pressure on scientists within our public health agencies to do things like we, uh, the commissioner of the FDA on convalescent plasma lied about its effectiveness. And he apologized for it and said it was an incredibly serious thing that he did. You, you can't put the thumb on the scale of science. That's radical. That's radical. That is un-American. That is wrong. These are 
people who have worked for are uh, for decades as public servants. And the job of the head of the FDA is to protect the scientists from political influence, not to put his thumb on the scale. We're coming up to the first debate next week. Um, and I'm curious how you uh, think this is going to be judged by the, the media theater <laughs> critics and what impact it would yeah. have. And, and my question really is, it almost seems like there's alternative realities. Joe Biden is going to have a, you know, a standard Democrat-Republican debate preparation in which he gets down his talking points. He, is, is, you know, fact-checks his key points. And <laughs> yeah, then Donald maybe. Trump is going to come in and it's going to be like a press conference. It's going to be kind of a going for it. It'll probably have a number of false or misleading statements on the you order think? of the more than 20,000, the Washington Post. That's a pretty biased of you to say that, Larry, <laughs> that he'll probably have some false statements. I, oh, I, 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 I hope your position is secure there. Because for you to suggest that the President of the United States may say something that is inaccurate or false or that there's in all probability, of course he's going to. Of course. He doesn't, nothing else. And, and I've discussed this on a couple with James Carville, uh, with David Axelrod on my podcast, with um, uh, Philippe Rhinus, who was uh, Hillary's sparring partner during her debate prep. He played Trump and had, you know, some, uh, a great perspective on that. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a challenge for Biden to stop saying, okay, that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. And just say, look, there's going to be some fact checkers. There's going to be, this is going to be fact checked up the wazoo. So you can see those, but he needs to call it out on the first, uh, I think the first number of lies. And then, I think he needs to turn to what he is going to do, what Joe Biden is going to do as president. And he's going to do, he, he's going to make sure we have a healthcare system that protects people with pre-existing conditions. And that's why this whole battle on the court, which uh, is so dishonest uh, in terms of <laughs> what uh, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate, my former colleagues uh, are doing, but the stakes of that are extremely high and especially on healthcare. And you'll remember, uh, I know you uh, have talked about this, uh, that in 2018, uh, the big, biggest issue by far was healthcare. And that's why Democrats flipped 41 seats. And by nature, when you're flipping a seat, you're flipping it from one party to the other. And those are purple. Did that go the wrong the pipe? The wrong pipe? <laughs> Careful when you drink water. Anyway, so um, where was I? I, oh, I uh, the, the point is in 18, by two to one, that the healthcare was the biggest issue. And it's, it's, it's back on again. But he should talk about what he's going to do. He should talk about infrastructure. He should be talking about uh, this obscene gaps between in wealth and income in the United States. And that's just not good for us. Uh, we talk about ed educational opportunities for people uh, and uh, in terms, especially in terms of making community college free and those kinds of things and what we're going to do to uh, K through 12 education and what we're going to do in terms of job training and create jobs with infrastructure. We, you know, Americans would like our infrastructure, our bridges, our railroads, our tunnels, our airports to look, to at least resemble the rest of the developed world. And Donald Trump said he'd spend a trillion dollars on infrastructure. He hasn't done that. It, what's, what's interesting about what I've just said about some of the things, including it, a, a different kind of energy economy, a green energy economy, addressing what's going on right now in the Gulf and what's going on, on in the West Coast and, and developing and, and creating jobs in green energy uh, he is going to, uh, 
he has a platform. He has stuff he's running on. There was no platform for the Republican Party. They said whatever he wants, <laughs> you know, and he was on Sean Hannity's show and Sean Hannity said, what are your goals for a second term? And he couldn't come up with anything. Yeah, but this strikes me as a rerun of 2016. Because Hillary had all the plans. She was very well prepared for the debate. And so there is the the normal sort of political debate on policy issues, my policy positions are better for the country than, than yours. Donald Trump doesn't play by that game. You sound and, like me uh, setting up my podcast <laughs> with my guests. I mean, that's exactly it. And this is, you know, I watched all those debates, especially the first one with Hillary, and I went, oh, my gosh, this is, this is no contest. So I think they, you know, you have to look at this a little differently if you're Joe Biden. And, but I think that you can't spend the whole time correcting him, certainly. That, that doesn't do, I think he has to talk about what he's going to do. There was a book uh, recently published by Michael Sandel, who you know, uh, sure. it's called The Tyranny of Merit. And in it, uh, Sandel puts his finger on this alternative reality that I think Donald Trump taps into skillfully. It is not the usual listing of policies and their impact. Instead, Sandel talks about the success that Trump had in tapping into a wellspring of anxieties, frustrations, and legitimate grievances to which yep. the mainstream parties have no compelling answer. And I could see Joe Biden presenting a cogent, fact-based uh, set of positions. And Donald Trump, again and again, refusing to engage at that level, instead tapping into this you know, politics, humiliation, and, and grievance. I think the way that uh, the Trump campaign artfully and the Republican Party had artfully over the years portrayed Hillary Clinton made her sort of the avatar of, of that, of, of the elites. And I think Joe Biden is a very different person in terms, uh, you know, he's from Scranton. I think he understands exactly what you're saying. I think, I think part of what the uh, Democratic primary did was show who he was, what his roots are, who he is as a person. I think that was very important. And I think the next thing to do in these debates is say just very concretely what he's going to do. And I think when people, you know, is it going to cut through that, those grievances, those, those very real grievances? Uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, there are, unfortunately, in this country, we have come to a point where there's almost no baseline for truth. And I think that's a, a you know, I wrote a book in uh, 1995, Rush Limbaugh is a big fat idiot and other observations. And Rush Limbaugh uh, was uh, presented the uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom by Donald Trump. And that, there's a reason for that. Donald Trump wouldn't exist, or at least he wouldn't be president, if it hadn't been for Rush Limbaugh. And then I wrote a book after that called Lies and Lying Liars Who Tell Them a Fair and Balanced Look at the Right. And the focus there was on Fox. And people at the time said, you can't call people liars. And I said, well, they're lying, <laughs> you know. And things have just gotten worse since, have escalated because of the Internet. And you now have two universes of information including QAnon and, you know, that uh, Democrats are blood-sucking pedophiles. And there are people who believe that. And there's Breitbart. And so there are these two. And so you get to a point where I, I had a uh, podcast with Lori Garrett, who is a Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, a winning writer on uh, infectious diseases, and Andy Slavitt from my friend from, uh, from Minneapolis, who was head of CMS, Medicare and Medicaid, during the last two years of the Obama administration. And we were talking, the focus was on the vaccine. And 
you know, the kind of predictable premature <laughs> unveiling of a vaccine in late October by the president. And I asked Lori if she would allow herself to be poked with that vaccine. She said no. And but here was the turn that I found very, very disturbing and depressing. She uh, said, even if Biden wins, are is the other side are Trump supporters, are they going to take the vaccine? Let's say three months down the road or six months down the road when there, there is a vaccine. And because a vaccine isn't effective unless a critical mass of Americans take it. So what we have seen, I think, in our politics is a willingness to, it's a scary time. It's very Orwellian. Black is white. War is peace. We're seeing that time. And, you know, you can't bring up a Supreme Court nominee in a presidential election year. Yes, you can. <laughs> I mean, it is, you know, when, when Kellyanne Conway said, uh, you remember, the, the president told us what he'd be like the first day because he said that my, I had a bigger inaugural crowd than, than Obama did, and he didn't. And uh, Spicer went on and said, you know, said the opposite. And Kellyanne Conway said, well, we're gonna present alternative facts. And at the time I thought, that is the most ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculous alternative facts. But she was doing us a favor because she was telling us what the Trump, what Donald Trump was all about, and this is very frightening. Let me uh, go back to the debate, if I could. Yeah, sure. Do you, do you expect there to be a winner that would be widely recognized, or is that just an old-fashioned idea that doesn't make sense when you have a partisan press and polarized voters? I, I think, given what I just, the answer I just gave, which was much longer than a debate answer than you're allowed to in a debate. I think given that frame, I don't think there'll be a winner or a loser because again, I mean, when I looked at, at those debates with Hillary, I just went, I've never seen anyone debate like this. He loses, he loses. Now, I think he did. I think he did and I think that we had some interference by the Russians. We had Comey, uh, you know, 11 days before do what he did. Uh, but you can't, I, it, I don't know how pundits, how, you know, professional analysts are going to a, a, approach saying what happened in this debate in terms of who won and who didn't. And so, therefore, I take it that you don't think it'll have much impact, actually, on, on voters because it's going to be each team is going to see what they want to see. I don't know. That's a great question. Um, if there is no, I don't think so. I, I, I try to wrap my head around who's undecided now <laughs> and what exactly it would be that <laughs> you needed to know <laughs> right at this point. So I don't know who those undecided voters are. And uh, to me, it may be that those, it's not about those, it's which of those undecided voters are going to turn out. So just a little footnote here from the, uh, the laboratory of political science. Um, a lot of those undecided voters are people who don't really care about politics. Sure. Uh, they're not that knowledgeable. They tend to be, some of the least knowledgeable, and they tend to make up their mind kind of in the last throes of the campaign. So I, I would not expect the many undecided, I'm not saying there are not a few out there, I would not expect many undecided folks to be taking an evening and devoting it to a presidential or vice presidential debate. I, I just don't see that happening. Let me ask you about another big topic. Um, we had the passing of Justice Ginsburg, this has obviously created uh, yet another firestorm in this amazing year of 2020. Um, and the, uh, the Democratic leader in the Senate 
um, Chuck Schumer came out and said, all options are on the table if the Republicans actually pursue a confirmation process and confirm um, a replacement. Do you support that? And what would that entail? Well, again, do I support? All options on the table. Uh, well, Whatever all that means. So, no, I don't, I don't support any option <laughs> because uh, I think some of them are just grossly illegal <laughs> and, and inhumane. Well, I, mean, I don't Chuck know Schumer. what he's talking about. But here, here's what I, I think what you're asking. Um, look, I was there in 17, uh, rather in 16, when Merrick Garland was blocked. And he was blocked on a bogus uh, something they created called the Biden rule. There was no Biden rule. Biden had given a speech in June of 1988 um, after the Supreme Court term was, had ended. And he basically said, look, if a conservative justice retires to create a place for a new conservative justice at this point and for extremely arch conservative justice, uh, we're not going to consider them unless we're consulted before by the president or unless he no they nominates a moderate. That, that was what he said at the time. But he said both of those caveats, right? Um, first of all, Obama had consulted with Republicans on Merrick Garland. Orrin Hatch had said Merrick Garland would be a great choice. And he had said that he actually at one point said, I don't think he's going to pick Merrick Garland because I think he's going to pick a lefty, the, the, blah, blah. So they were lying about that. And they were saying no, uh, no Supreme Court justice had been confirmed. Uh, but they were lying about that. Uh, justice Kennedy was confirmed in an election year. So now after, you know, and you've seen one video after another of Republican senators who are there now saying like, well, if the reverse comes up, I would not, <laughs> I would not vote for a replacement. And you can, you can mark my word, you can play this tape if you want to, and you'd be right to, because I'd be lying, <laughs> you know, and, and then they do it. Yeah, and, no, we... and so, so rightfully, what do you, what's your response to that? What is, your, what is the responsible response to that of Chuck Schumer and of Democrats? Is it to go like, well, okay, uh, you guys don't play by the rules, and so we're going to protest, but then if we get the Senate and we get the White House, um, we're just not going to do anything about it. We're not going to expand the court. We're not going to add four justices to take the place of the two you stole, Merrick Garland and then this one, because this is like 40-some days before. This is very different. You remember that uh, Justice Scalia died in early, early February. So very, very different thing. And so I think... Uh, and, and then getting rid of the filibuster. And that suddenly you have 14, uh, four more justices. Let, let, let me ask this question. Justices. Do you support? That, that's what you're asking, right? Well, I want to get to the, like, what do you do about that litany of grievances? And there are suggestions about holding up um, the, uh, the budget for the coming year. There are suggestions about using all the, the arcania of Senate rules uh, for blocking or at least slowing down and delaying a vote. Um, there's talk about, you know, if, if the Democrats were to take the White House and the Senate to possibly uh, pack the Supreme Court with their own nominees or to create, as the Washington Post said, a kind of term limit of 18 years. What are you, what are you thinking about the response? Should the, if the Republicans move ahead or try to, should the Democrats try to delay it and block it uh, using all the, the tools they have in the Senate? Well, what I know about the Senate is that I don't, they can't block it. They can't. Uh, Mitch McConnell ultimately controls the majority. Um, you can do anything with the majority in terms of the rules, um, as we know. 
and uh, overrule the parliamentarian. So they will, any talk about, we have no hard power to prevent this. We just have none. So all, that's just the fact. That's just the fact in terms of how the Senate works. So then uh, if the Democrats get the majority in the Senate and the White House in the 2020 election, should they pack the Supreme Court? What, what, do, you, what do you think well, they you should notice, do? Well, you notice, Larry, that that's what I went to right away. Yeah. Yeah. And I went to that because of what I just said about there's no way to stop it. And yeah, I think it would be absolutely, completely legitimate. And go to four, n- go to 13, not go to 15, not do that. I also think the idea of 18-year terms for Supreme Court justices and then guaranteeing that, uh, you know, that each senator, each president gets two during his uh, his or her term, that makes a lot of sense. There's also a lot of shenanigans you can do with that, which is just block anybody from uh, if, if the other party has the majority in the, in the Senate. So there's no, I don't, I don't know. The founding fathers put a rickety system <laughs> together <laughs> in many ways. And uh, we're, we're seeing it being tested right now. And my fear is, I have another fear, which is this, uh, what Donald Trump might do on election day, and then going forward in the next uh, weeks to, you know, he has said that if, if I lose this election, that means it was rigged, which is his way of saying, I win this election, I've won. And the only way I'm not sworn in again on January 20th is if it's been stolen from me. And this is not a guy who seems to have any understanding or appreciation for democracy. He seems to favor autocrats. Those are the types of guys he likes. Those are the type, you know, Kim Jong-un and Erdogan uh, you know, and on and on and on. Putin, of course. That's who he admires. And there is uh, already you're hearing from Donald Jr. and from him saying that votes counted after election day don't count. And it's the totals on election day are the, the totals. Well, guess what? Michigan and Pennsylvania don't start counting absentee ballots till election day. So guess what? Democrats are, sp- are going to be voting more by mail because Donald Trump has said they're illegitimate, though he votes by mail. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, so as a result, you're going to have more, probably a significant number more Democrats voting by mail. So it may very well be that Michigan and Pennsylvania, uh, at, you know, by the end of that evening, that Donald Trump is ahead, but that after you count the legitimate votes, mail-in votes, that Biden wins and wins significantly. But will Donald Trump recognize that? Will, and if he doesn't, what will he do? And, I fear for this, and Norm, I talk to Norm Ornstein all the time, uh, as you do, I'm sure, and he has this fear as well. This is not, you know, this is, Norm is a very middle-of-the-road uh, political scientist, a political scientist like you, uh, you know, a, a group of people I admire so much, political yeah. scientists. Oh, Norm is great, and he's a good friend of Humphrey School and of mine personally. You've gone through, you know, a couple scenarios um, and you hear a number of progressives um, who are saying that our country is becoming less and less democratic. There's real fear that the democracy itself is under jeopardy and it's Donald Trump, um, his charges of fraud and it's it's saying he won't accept the results uh, or possibly might not accept the results. Um, depending on, on the election outcomes. 
um, there are a whole slew of efforts going around uh, the actual voting process and efforts to uh, make it more difficult during coronavirus. There's also a set of institutional questions. We were talking about the possibility of a 6-3 uh, conservative majority that would last for years and years. Um, there's a lot of talk also among progressives about the fact that our um, system in Washington, the institutions, have a hard anti-democratic bent. So the 53 Republican Senate majority has rests on tens of millions of fewer voters than the 40-seat Democratic minority. Do you think it's time to really kind of go at our system and look at elections, look at reforming uh, the Senate, possibly uh, welcoming in um, the District of, uh, of Columbia and, and Washington, Puerto Rico, um, and, and other sorts of changes to make the system more democratic. Is that the right direction? I, I think that what I, what I am concerned about is, is Donald Trump's lack of any kind of understanding and dedication to the concept of democracy. And I have a very immediate threat. We're having this conversation, what, 40 days before the election. And, you know, the way the framers put it together, when do the electors get together? You know, they get together, what, the first something after the first Wednesday in December, right? <laughs> it's some odd, odd day. And what if at that day there are states in dispute and then it will go to a 6-3 Supreme Court? What is going to happen? Also, if it goes to the House, does it go to the House then? And if it goes to the House, also very undemocratic in the sense that, you know, Wyoming has the same number of votes as California, one. And so, uh, for those who don't know this kind of arcania, uh, if there is this sort of process into the House, the um, the delegations have one vote for each state, and that's what uh, Alan's referring to. But Alan, let me just get back to this. Well, th that's agenda. a very, very real possibility, actually. But and, do you and what I'm saying is, this is 40 days before election. We're we we may be in for a really bumpy ride. Let's assume we get past the bumpy ride. Um, and if the polls are right, uh, Joe Biden is elected, um, you know, there's a slight chance Democrats will take the Senate. Maybe they do. Do you think the Democratic Party should get rid of the filibuster, admit the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico and uh, make some structural changes in the Supreme Court? Is that is that the right direction for the country and, and that the Democratic Party should take? I I. First of all, on the filibuster, yes, I think we should get rid of the filibuster. Um, and I, obviously that's fraught a little bit, but it's been abused. You know, Mitch McConnell used the filibuster in a way it had never been used. He filibustered more of Obama's nominees than had been filibustered in the entire rest of the history of the country. Uh, you know, I mean, there, and so what's happened is, is that the filibuster, um, you know, Harry Reid is now for lifting, getting rid of the filibuster. And I think that is going to happen. Now, of course, you do it, they'll do it the next time they're in charge. And what, what it used to do was there was it was there to create some kind of consensus to negotiate. There isn't, that doesn't exist, doesn't seem to exist anymore. You know, the Republican Party before 1964 was a very different Republican Party. And so was the Democratic Party. And that, and since then, it has become more and more and more and more polarized to the point where now you have Republicans in lockstep in a way that you're seeing right now. Uh, probably the only senators uh, who are not going to go with this are uh, this plan to uh, uh, 
you know, to confirm a, a Supreme Court nominee are going ahead with it because they know what the count is and they, they're up for re-election. I'm talking about Susan Collins in particular. Um, Murkowski, I think, is up in two years. That, but that they can do it. They'll have permission to do it. This has become a very different body than it was when the filibuster served the purpose that it served, which is to find some consensus on things. It's, this, this Senate has done nothing, virtually nothing. Let me ask you, we've got a bunch of questions here and I'm gonna yeah. try yeah. to touch them, but I wanna hit uh, several of them. Um, here's a question. What are your thoughts about how to approach the Antifa um, and this idea that there's a kind of anarchist, uh, far left, violent threat to the country. Is that a real issue? And if so, how should it be handled? Well, Antifa or Antifa, I don't know. I think it's Antifa, but what do I know? Uh, Christopher Ray, the uh, head of the FBI, the director of the FBI testified, I think within the last week, that Antifa is a much smaller threat than right-wing extremists, that they are not organized. Now, that said, anybody who's talking about taking up arms <laughs> is no uh, friend of our democracy and, uh, and should be put, you know, should, should be pre uh, prevented from doing that, certainly and then should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law if they do something like that. Uh, th that goes, I think, without saying, or should. Um, but if you just look at the, the director of the FBI, who serves at the pleasure of the president, wasn't saying this stuff for political reasons. He, is, he was putting his own job in jeopardy. He was very plainly saying that the threat is from the extreme right. Yep. Uh, we've got several questions here about structural racism and uh, uh, about um, how to approach creating change. Mm -hmm. We've noticed in the polls that support for Black Lives Matter, which had been 67% uh, back in June, has now come down to about 50, 55% in various polls. Do you see staying power and taking on structural racism in America? And if so, what would be the first steps that you would recommend for Congress? Yeah, I call it systemic racism, or that seemed to be the term that uh, were the, uh, you know, after George Floyd, that hideous, hideous murder in, of course, it was on the heels of other murders of, of black men and women that we've seen historically. But that was so obscene that I think it did affect, it, it, it was a turning point. And uh, a large majority, as you said, of Americans said that systemic racism is acknowledged its existence. The president does not. The president says we don't have systemic racism. Um, that's unbelievable to me. I would like to ask him, if I were in the debate, I'd like to ask him, if I were Joe Biden, when exactly did systemic racism end in this country? When was that? Was it <laughs> the 1964 Civil Rights Act? Was it 1965 Voting Rights Act? When are you talking about? Uh, it certainly wasn't after the Civil War. I mean, when was it? During Jim Crow? When was this? Um, and I, I think that what we need to do as a society is recognize the economic inequality that has been built in. If you look at after World War II, do, do we're after, I'm sorry. Do you have specific policies in mind, uh, you know, things that you would say this would be a good place to start? Well, I would certainly make it easy, much easier for people who do not have the economic means uh, to 
have childcare, to have, get education. I mean, that is sort of an economic response, but that is a huge part. I, I was talking to Chris Rock uh, just a couple months ago. Wait, wait, wait. And, Let's just pause on that. Not everybody I've had on starts a sentence with, I was talking to Chris Rock. Um, well, Chris happens to have an interesting viewpoint about all of this. And he was saying to me, what do you think is the net, the, the, the Boston Globe, uh, the, the, the part of the Boston Globe that did that, uh, the, the movie that on the priest, the pedophilia, spotlight. that unit, huh? It's called the Spotlight. Spotlight. Uh, spotlight, they did a, they decided to look at what, what is the uh, wealth, net wealth, of white families in the Bo- in Boston and the Boston area versus black families. So he said, Al, can you, <laughs> you know, do you have, can you take a, take a guess? And I went, boy, uh, 250,000 for whites. And I, when I tell the story now, it sounds like it was 247. And that was just, and he said, what do you think it is for black families? And I said, negative or zero or very close to zero i said it was eight dollars eight dollars where does wealth come from it comes from owning your house that's where it comes from look at after world war ii this is where i was going with the the gi bill you could buy a house but not if it was redlined not if you're the not if all the neighborhoods that were black neighborhoods in Minneapolis were, were redlined. So they couldn't use their GI Bill. And, you know, there are a lot of stories about Minneapolis and St. Paul uh, post what happened, post that murder. And, you know, we have an uglier history than we like to admit and it's the Rondo neighborhood. And it is, you know, redlining. And my mom was a real estate agent in, uh, you know, in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Um, and she told us about redlining. Well, we've got uh, several questions here about yeah. uh, concern about the breakdown in uh, political discourse. Um, and uh, the, the question is, what are strategies you would recommend for engaging in political discourse with individuals who may not show your values or positions? And I would add, do you think that's possible in a time when there's such polarization and we've got elected officials in Washington who seem to be fanning uh, different realities and policies? I do think the president is fanning flames of division. And deliberately so. I've never seen a president who just gave up the idea. Never on his radar <laughs> was the idea of I'm president of the entire country and I'm going to try to bring people together. I think, you know, Joe Biden is not FDR, but he is Joe Biden. And I think he will try to do that. As far as individuals talking to each other, uh, friends and stuff like that, I, I, you know, I have a lot of Republican friends that are friend friends. The frustrating thing was in the Senate. I would, you know, in Stuart Stevens, you know, Stuart is, he was campaign manager for Bush, George W. Bush, for Romney, for the presidential. Uh, He's written a book called, uh, it was was a big lie, right? He's also a co-founder of the Lincoln Project. Yes. But he's talking about what he did was a big lie. That's what he's talking about. So I have a, in 2017, we had the, uh, the tax cut, the Republican tax cut, the Trump tax cut. And it was so targeted toward high income people, the benefits. And also it was going to create, and one of the things he said was a lie was, was Republicans talking about deficits. Because every time there's been a Republican president, the deficits have skyrocketed. They skyrocketed under W, 
um, they are skyrocketing under Trump before COVID. And I went down to the floor and talked to Tim Scott, who was leading the floor battle center from South Carolina. I said, you know, this is going to balloon the deficit. You know that this is going to, your own congressional budget office appointed by you, by Mitch McConnell, has said this will increase the deficit over a trillion dollars a year. And he said, no, it won't because of, of dynamic scoring, you know, dynamic scoring. And I went, no. <laughs> and it, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. I'm sure, so it was I'm, impossible. And I'm, impossible. Sure there, I'm sure there are people wondering, what about under Bill Clinton? What about Barack Obama? And the short answer of that is, Budgets, of course, came down under Bill Clinton. It was, you know, as close balance to- Balance the budget. Yeah, as close to a balance as we've seen uh, since World War II. And under Barack Obama- No, it, no, it was balanced. It was He balanced. had a surplus. Yeah, actually a surplus, that's right. He and then under Barack Obama- surplus. Under Barack Obama, it did soar in response to the Great Recession. But then by the time he left office, it was actually- uh, coming down substantially. As a percentage of GDP, it was yeah. certainly coming down substantially. I'll, I'll, yeah. I've got two more questions here. Sure. Um, one's from uh, one of our friends out here in the audience. Here's my question. My favorite, or I think the most important fact about American politics is the declining proportion of the electorate that's white. If you go back to 1980, when Ronald Reagan won a, you know, a very substantial victory, it was about 90%. For 2020, it's, it's estimated to be about 66%. Do you think that's going to usher in an era of Democratic rule? Or do you think the Demo Republican Party is going to change rather substantially from the current uh, administration's uh, um, policies? What a great question, um, because you thought so. Uh, you, one would have thought so. You remember after the 2012 defeat of the Republican Party that they did a, quote, autopsy, right? And in the autopsy, they said exactly this. They said the demographics of the country are changing. We need to be appealing to... Uh, Hispanics and to people, just all, to people of color. And who is their next nominee? Donald Trump. So they really abandoned that. And, uh, and, and, and instead, I think we, I, we have a xenophobic president. But do you think, do you think this is going to set up, you know, some number of years of democratic rule? Does, it, does the opposite follow? Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, uh, I don't, but, but they are trying to, their response to that, instead of reaching out and trying to reach out to people of color, it's to suppress votes. Do you, do you see strategies that you think will be effective by Democrats? For instance, we had a program yesterday with the, expert in Latino voters, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Mark Lopez from the Pew Research Center. And one of his, uh, I would say my interpretation of one of his points is that Democrats are not that effective in reaching out to Latinos, partly because they are so targeted on a few states. It's, you know, it's Florida, basically. Uh, mm -hmm. And a lot of Latinos live in California. And they, so there's not, there's not the kind of commitment to this fastest growing part of the population, which is actually gonna be the largest um, uh, part of the electorate in terms of voters of color. Do you think Democrats are doing a good job to capitalize on this demographic change? No, no, no. And I think there's a couple of things about that that you just mentioned that just jump to my head. One is that this, this electoral college system is just crazy. And what happens is uh, we have this focus. Florida has dictated our Cuban policy <laughs> since the 60s. And you have, it also creates the opportunity, you can suppress 
600 black votes in 2000, uh, in 2000 and win the presidential election. It means that just the battleground states are the battleground states and you ignore California. You're, there's no reason to pay any attention to California except for the fact that there are 40 million people there. But they don't, does anyone do a rally there? They do fundraisers there, of course. We need to enact the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. I know that you know what that is, but basically already there are 15 states that have signed on and District of Columbia, between them, there are 196 electoral votes. It kicks in at uh, 270 uh, at a majority. And what it says is it, it completely conforms with the Constitution. The Constitution merely says that uh, the state legislatures shall choose the electors, right? So what the Interstate Compact does, and again, 15 states have signed on to this, is it says that the, that the state will sign the electors, the legislature will sign the electors to the winner of the national popular vote. And that's what we need to do in order to make sure 80% of people of color live in non-battleground states. So we, this makes sense from so many standpoints. You know, if you're in a battleground state, you're twice as likely to get a natu natural disaster labeled a presidential uh, national disaster. I mean, uh, in Minnesota, as, you know, if we'd have a flood or a tornado, very often the difference between being declared a national disaster or not was the difference between people, whether they got paid, back, paid for their home. It's a huge thing. And, the, and presidents, and this is presidents of both sides, at one point, there were fires going on in Colorado and fires going on in Texas during the Obama administration. The help got to Colorado faster. It shouldn't be that way. Yeah. Good point. Uh, we're, yeah. We're just out of time. I just have a, a question for you from uh, Dean Jocelyn. Will you run for a political office again? I, I have no plans to do that, certainly. And uh, look, I love serving the people of Minnesota in the Senate. I, you know, I used to say, like, people ask me, um, you know, uh, was being in the U.S. Senate the, the, the funnest job you ever had? And I'd say, no, that was Saturday Night Live. That was more fun, but it was the most meaningful job I ever had. But I, haven't, I didn't hear fun. you slam a door on that. I heard you say, no plans. So uh, I don't believe in slamming doors on okay. anything or anybody, especially. Okay. Um, could you just hold on one second? I just want to roll through a few thank yous and keep our audience here while I do it. I don't want to thank people. <laughs> Go ahead. You do it. Go ahead. Okay. So first I want to just mention, we've got some programs coming up. Great program, October 7th on uh, the year of the woman. This is a terrific program with, Jennifer Lawless from the University of Virginia and uh, Catherine Pearson, my colleague here um, in Minnesota. Uh, we've got uh, part of our series on election administration. We run uh, one of the premier programs on training election officials, completely nonpartisan. That's coming up on October 8th. And this is to get really uh, cutting edge reports from the key officials around the country. And then October 14th, we have another um, Minnesotan joining us, Tom Freeman from the New York another Times. Another St. Louis Park Jew. Another St. Louis that. Park gem. That's exactly right. And there are many. Um, I want to thank you for joining <laughs> us, let you know that there's a recording that will be posted both on YouTube. It will also be posted on our, our podcast uh, channel, which is like Al Franken. It's available on <laughs> Apple and Spotify and um, Stitcher, too, I think. Before you go, Larry, can, may I just thank you? Thank Not you so much, Al. Just for today, but also for the stellar work you've done throughout the decades there at the at the school and making the Humphrey School such a a great place for the students and for something that Minnesotans are very proud of. Thank you very much. We've done this a bunch of times, and uh, it's always fun. 
And um, there are many times when, when uh, you've just left me uh, both thinking hard and laughing hard. Um, so I want to thank you very much. And I also want to thank the people who made this possible, Natalie, uh, Mike Kari, who's the producer of this, um, and Lee Chittenden, who's the head of all regarding our center. Thank you so much to, to all those people. And Al, we wish you the very best and hope you'll come back and join us again. It would be my honor. And uh, again, thank you for inviting me. And this is a lot of fun. Thank you. Take care. Be well. And thanks to all of you for joining us. Take care, Al. You too. Thanks. That was fun. Take care.